May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, to you alone, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year. We are in the season of Epiphany. So Christmas, if you're playing by the book, Christmas actually ended yesterday. That was the 12th day of Christmas. So uh, I take down my Christmas tree like on December 26th. Uh, but if you are really playing by the rules, Christmas is really not supposed to end until yesterday. Uh, and as soon as Christmas ends, we enter a new season called Epiphany. So just a little bit of background. Uh, epiphany, what is it? So you know it probably from its secular usage. Uh, an epiphany is a, a revelation. So epiphany, if it's uh, to be uh, characterized, or, uh, is uh, caricatured by a light bulb, right? So you have a light bulb on top of the, the scientist's head. Think of Isaac Newton, who saw the apple fall from the tree and aha, something that had been clouded was now clear, like a revelation. So an epiphany. Little trivia question, I had to look this up. Who knows who sat in the tub, saw the water being displaced and said, Eureka. Anyone remember that guy? His name was? No, no one's particularly confident. Archimedes. So uh, yeah, so I had to Google it. Uh, but that's another example of an epiphany. Oh, something that was clouded has become clear. Used in a religious sense, obviously, epiphany doesn't refer to a scientific revelation, but the revelation of God. That God has been revealed. So on Christmas, we celebrate that the light has come into the world. God is often typified as light. Light and revelation go together. And God is described as light within the Bible. God is, his word is a lamp to your feet, a light to my path. God is, his presence is revealed through light, the burning bush and other instances in which God is characterized by light. What happened on Christmas? Well, the gospel writer John says that light has come into the world. That's Christmas. And on Epiphany, we celebrate that that light, which came into the world, still continues to shine. And as it shines, it still draws people uh, to the light, to God. So the iconic story of Epiphany is a story we just heard, the story of the wise men. What did the wise men do? See, they saw a light. A light shining above the child. And that child, had, that light had a magnetic appeal. And uh, the wise men followed that light, laying their treasures at the feet of the child. You know, in some traditions, I think the Orthodox Church, do you know Epiphany today is uh, a bigger celebration than Christmas? It's just strange to think about. Like the presents and the holidays and all the vacations, they occur here and not on the 25th. And while I'm a big fan of Christmas, they, that celebration occurs for a good reason because it's so important. It's not just that the light has come, but that the light of Christ continues to shine and as it shines, it reveals to us the nature of God and draws all people to him. So that's a little background on Epiphany. I want to spend some time with you in Isaiah. Will you please turn there? Isaiah chapter 60. Now the first two verses, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has fallen upon you. That's a great description of Christmas. The light, Isaiah writing five to seven hundred years before Christ, anticipates the light of God coming into the world and in light of 
Christmas, we can say, indeed, the light has come into the world. So verses 1 through 2 are a great summary of Christmas. God is light. Light is coming into the world. Light draws all nations to him. And so far, that's not pro probably not terribly surprising to any of, of us, that God would be somehow related to light and that light would attract people to, to it. It seems uh, fitting, doesn't it? Where this passage really gets interesting, the passage in Isaiah really gets interesting, is in the following verses because the focus shifts. I want to show you. In verses 3 and following, the focus is no longer on the brightness of God, the shining, the radiance of God, but the focus is surprisingly on the radiance of the people of God. And for verses 3 to the end, that is the real a heartbeat of this passage, not so much that God is shining, although certainly he does, that God is light, although certainly he is, but that you, you me, the people of God, are brilliant, bright, magnetic. So I want to make, I want to make three points this morning. I want to turn to the passage and show you that, in fact, we shine that Isaiah anticipates you and I shining. I want to ponder with you through this passage how that is to occur, how you shine. And third and final, I want to consider very briefly as we come to a conclusion, I want to consider the impact of shining. So first, that we shine. That's the emphasis of this passage. Let me show you. Verse three, and nations shall come to your light. Look at the pronoun. To whose light? God's light? No, to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Whose brightness? Whose rising? Not God's light. Your light, the people of God, their brightness. Kings will come to the brightness. And look who's coming. Everybody. I mean, it's a party and everybody is invited. Look at some of these place names, many of which uh, we know almost nothing about other than that they're far away and they're not home. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, uh, Nebioth, verse 7, Kedar. Kedar is a name that I recognize. It's a, it's a name that shows up in the Psalms. I have a practice of trying to read through the Psalms regularly. The 120th Psalm says this, how long must I dwell in the tents of Kedar? How long must I live amongst the enemies of peace? Point being that Kadar, wherever it is and whoever those people are, they're not friendly. And the psalmist is bemoaning the fact that he's there. Well, here in this passage, all those people from Kadar, they're being drawn to the light. And look what they're bringing. It's everybody and they're bringing all, they're bringing everything. Bringing uh, their sons and their daughters. What a, what a wonderful image that somehow the people of God are, are laying claim to the to have some uh, parentage over the people of the earth. They're bringing all of the, uh, where am I? Verse eight, the multitude of camels shall cover you. Funny story, we, uh, uh, we have a missionary partner over in northern Kenya and uh, we go yearly. Uh, we'll be taking our next mission trip on July 25th, or late July, I should say. Let's mark it on your calendar. It's a phenomenal trip. We go to some very remote areas 
areas that still have, do not have the Bible written in their native tongue. And about four or five years ago, we were in one of these uh, very remote areas. I was with my eldest daughter, very traditional, traditional society in which marriages were arranged. And in that society, the dowry went from, uh, to, to the parents of the bride. So we may think of it going the other way. So here, uh, someone approached me and said, yeah, he was joking, I think, but he said, he said, for your daughter and my son, I will give you a dowry of 13 camels. I looked, I looked at great Grace, my eldest, I said, Grace, 13 camels. <laughs> wow. Uh, 13 camels, uh, and he referenced 13 camels because it represented an, an astonishing amount of wealth. I mean, it's like saying, I will give you a just some phenomenal price tag, a billion dollars, right? Here we're told that the camels, and in Hebrew is a very literal language, here we're told the camels are thick as flies. That's the actual uh, uh, force of the translation, that, the, that you got to scrape them off. They're going to be so thick. Wealth and abundance is brought by the nations to the people of God. Gold and frankincense. Did you see that in uh, silver and gold, verse 9, verse 6? They shall bring gold and frankincense. Interesting. That's the same thing that the wise men brought to whom? To Christ. Who is it being brought to here? To the people of God the treasures of the nations being brought before the people of God. Why? Because the people of God shine. So, the first point, that we shine. I wonder how that, if you had to describe 2018, would you think, yeah, I shone. If you look forward to 2019 as one of your New Year's resolutions, 2019, I'm going to shine. I, it seems almost preposterous, doesn't it? Maybe a goal too high. We have thriving here, or thriving here, surviving there, and shining is way up there. It seems like an unattainable goal. But I want you to see from this passage, it's almost a foregone conclusion that you and I, the people of God, are to shine. That's our first point. Now let's consider how. How are you and I to shine? Let me start with an analogy. Every night, most nights, you'll look up and you're going to see two objects shining in the sky. You'll see stars, stars shine. And stars shine because they're little nuclear reactors about a billion miles away. Stars shine because they generate their own light. And the brightness of that star points to its, the, itself. That's one shining object in the sky. Now, on most nights of the month, you'll see another shining object as well. You'll see a moon. And that moon sometimes will look just stunningly bright. January 21st, I checked, that's your next new moon. 
And if the weather is right, you know, sometimes you can walk and you'll see the moon casting shadows. Sometimes the moon is so bright that you can read by the light of the moon. Stunningly bright. But did you know the moon's not bright at all? Sorry to burst your bubble, but uh, we had uh, pictures from the little spacecraft that landed on the far side of the moon. We saw that in the news, right? That happened this past week. And you know what? The moon is actually dark. It's actually desolate. It could not be darker. Well, why, how does the moon shine? <laughs> If you've been to astronomy in elementary school, then you know that the moon does not shine out of its own light. The moon shines because it reflects light. The, the moon catches the light from the sun and bounces it back to you and me. The moon doesn't shine by itself. The moon doesn't shine for itself. Think of it, every time that you salute the moon. Wow, look how bright that moon is. You are giving a backdoor compliment to the sun, aren't you? Why is that moon bright? Wow, the sun, if we could anthropomorphize, the sun must be saying, yes, that moon is bright because I am bright. Now the discerning listener can anticipate <laughs> the direction of this analogy. Are you and I to shine like the stars or the moon? I think every age has an appetite for stardom. But don't you think that our age in particular has an unhealthy appetite for stardom? Social media has fallen on hard times for a number of reasons, one of which I think we're just waking up to the reality that these platforms just feed our insatiable appetite for our own stardom. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Think of the, the shows that we watch, American Idol. I don't know if that's still running, but uh, it was at one point in time, and it's not a good thing to be an idol to be a star. It's actually a bad thing to be an idol. You're not meant to shine like a star. I found this quote, I think it was of, from Bruce Springsteen, one of my favorite musicians. He said, reflecting on the end of his first marriage, he said that his first marriage ended because he believed and acted in home, in his home, as if what was said about him on stage was true. What'd they say on stage? You're a star. And he is. <laughs> You're not meant to shine like a star. You're not meant to shine with the brightness of your own radiance. You're not meant to draw people to your own brilliance. We're not meant to shine like stars. We're meant to shine like the moon. In fact, one of the early ways that the church referred to 
that the church fathers referred to the church was this great Latin phrase, the mysterium lunae, the mystery of the moon, that the church reflects the brilliance and the brightness of God like the moon reflects the brightness of the sun. The moon does not try to shine. The moon doesn't have to work on shining. The moon simply needs an unobstructed path to the sun. And this, the moon shines. Christians do not need to work on shining. We don't need to strive to shine. We need an unobstructed path to the sun, S-O-N. And we shine. Look at the first verse from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine. Look at that little preposition. Circle it. Why are you and I to shine? Why? Because well, light has come. You are not bright in and of yourselves. And you're not meant to shine for yourselves. But you can shine. I think we could underscore and say you must shine. Because the light has come into the world. The light came into the world in Christmas, shining over that child in Bethlehem, and the light still shines today. And the Lord is present. He is here. He is with us as we gather for worship. He is with you as you open his word. He is here for you to gaze upon. And as you gaze upon him, as you foster an unobstructed view of the sun, as you turn to him, you cannot help but shine. Third and final, let's look at the results of shining. This is really, I think, just a wonderful passage. Circle, look at these two words we find as the result. People will be drawn to the church, uh, or to the people of God. The nations will be drawn, camels, frankincense, etc. Because verse 7, look, I will beautify my house. The same thing again. The Holy One of Israel will make you beautiful. The result of shining will be that the people of God are made beautiful. And I, that is equally parts convicting and inspiring. I don't think most people, when they think of the church, think of beauty. If you had to do a word association with a man on the street, I'm guessing that beauty and church would be not be readily associated but at one point in time they were think of the art think of the cathedrals think of the stained glass think of the music that the church has inspired I had a friend uh, I was at a conference and someone said uh, what will have more impact do you think on today's culture the most well-reasoned argument for Christ or Handel's Messiah, the latter. Beauty, beauty doesn't need an argument. Beauty doesn't need to be explained. Beauty explains itself. And the church, as it reflects the light of Christ, ought to be, should be, should strive to be beautiful. We try to nurture that at this church. We have this concert series in which we strive to put beautiful things in front of our community. Why? Because I want the church to be connected to what it should properly be connected with beauty. The people of God, as they have an unobstructed access to God, reflect some of his light and some of his beauty to the world. So, January 21st, it's your next full moon.
Hopefully it'll be a clear sky. Look up at that moon. I have a little birding telescope. So every once in a while I'll train it on the moon. Stars are boring to look at. The moon is not. The moon is beautiful. And as you look at that moon, remember, it's your object lesson. I, like that moon, am dark. I dwell in deep darkness, says the prophet Isaiah. But if I orient myself to the sun, S-O-N, then I will reflect some of God's goodness some of his humility, some of his self-sacrifice, some of his indiscriminate kindness. And the life that reflects Christ will be beautiful. It will be. It will have an inarguable beauty. And in doing so, it will draw others to him. So let's listen to the prophet Isaiah. Rise, shine. Why? Because light has come into the world. Jesus shone then, he shines now, you can know him, he is here. Turn to him and you will shine.